0: everybody. This is Chess Griffin, and welcome back to Linux Reality. This is episode 54. Hope you all have had a good week. Uh, in this episode, we are going to talk about the xorg.conf file. It's a configuration file for the X server. It's something that uh, uh, folks may need to tweak uh, from time to time, although nowadays... Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not as often as it, as it used to be. Most distributions these days seem to be able to configure, uh, the X server pretty well on their own. But anyway, we'll, you know, we'll talk about all that good stuff, how to configure it, what the different sections are in the X file and, you know, good things like that. So, uh, before we get started though, got a few uh, things I wanted to mention here up front. First of all, uh, you know, we've been talking about this Linux and schools topic over the last several weeks. And in last week's uh, Linux Link Tech Show, Dan Washko, one of the hosts of that show, uh, had you know, a really good discussion. He, he, he kind of talked about this issue at length and um, he's got a lot of experience he used to work in a in a school setting and uh, so he has some real first-hand experience with the challenges that schools face uh, with you know with the ideas of introducing Linux or you know just you know sort of the way school systems and school boards operate when they deal with hardware and software and things like that he talked about some of the You know, some of the challenges that Linux might face, such as uh, reduced cost, you know, Microsoft cuts really good deals with these school systems, Um, sort of the, you know, trying to go up against the status quo, you know, go against the grain a little bit can, can be difficult, and a bunch of other things. And so... I really encourage folks yeah i 'm sure most of you already listened to their show, but if you if you haven 't heard it, definitely check it out i 'll put a link to it in the show notes because um, it was just a really, really interesting discussion, and it was really great to hear his points. i think he ha- he had some excellent points, and uh, he raised some real issues that uh, that Linux advocates face i think in dealing with with school systems so Uh, Anyway, you know, definitely check that out. Also wanted to mention again about the Ohio Linux Fest. Um, uh, We've had a good, you know, some discussions about that in the forums. A few people have emailed me about it as well. I encourage folks rather than emailing me uh, to try to connect up with other people just post in the forums so we can all talk about it and talk about, you know, different ideas and things like that. So Uh, I really look forward to to meeting as many of you that are able to, to come to the show. I'm like I said, I'm definitely going to be there still haven't registered. Got to do that. Got to make my hotel reservations and all that good stuff, but I'm going to try to do that this week and go ahead and and, uh, get all that stuff set up. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I've never been to a, any kind of Linux conference or anything like that. So this will be my first time and sounds like just a, sounds like a great one to go to. So it should be a lot of fun. Also wanted to to thank folks for some donations. I got a few few donations this week and I really do appreciate that. It helps out a great deal with my hosting fees and things like that. So, you know, every little bit bit helps and, and I just wanted to just wanted to thank you. All right. I think that's gonna do it for the uh, administrative stuff, and I think we're gonna get right to discussing xorg.conf. <laughs> Okay, well before I start talking about Xorg.conf, I guess maybe I should take a step back and talk about the X server. The X server is uh it's the um, software that runs on Linux that allows your desktop environment or your window manager to run. So it's not GNOME or KDE or anything like that, but it's 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 the software that those desktop environments run on so you have to have the x server configured and running in order to have any kind of graphical environment the x server or the x window system has been around a long time i think it used to be called well i know it used to be called x free 86 that's f r e e x free 86 and i think that was i think that was sort of a play um, or takeoff on x 386 you know sort of the intel architecture and but anyway Xfree86 you know was around a long time and uh, that was the original at least that was the X server the X window system that was that was around when I first started using Linux and then several years ago um, some folks branched that off i think it was due to some licensing concerns but anyway the the current system is called Xorg and their website is actually x.org uh <laughs> that's a pretty cool website um, one letter uh so i think uh, so Xorg is the is the current system it's uh it's been you know very actively maintained and there's a lot of really cool new technologies that are going into the x server and things like that but but basically the x server is you know as far as i understand it it's 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 one of these layers i know we've talked about the different layers in in a linux um, uh, operating system before but you know uh, sort of in a very general sense you might have the kernel first and then the kernel loads and, and loads all the different modules and things and and then at some point the the, uh, the shell or you know is, is loaded that will sort of be the, um, sort of your way to interact with the machine. and then on top of that is, uh, is the X server and then the X server will run and then on top of that will be your your you know uh, KDE or gnome or window manager of choice or what have you. Uh, so the, so the X window system sort of runs in, in the middle there, and the xorg.conf configuration file is the main file that operates to configure the X server. Now, as I said, you know, most distributions these days, most modern distributions do a really great job of configuring the X server automatically. So nowadays, a lot of times people just go right along and never have to mess with this configuration file. But it does come up from time to time. Even in this last week, I know in the forums, a couple of people, I think there's, there was one post I'm thinking of where someone had some problems with a graphics driver and was not able to log into X at all. And uh, it kept, you know, just sort of crashing back into the terminal and uh, so I think it's still handy to kind of know your way around this file. You know, I thought I'd point out some of the different areas on things you might need to tweak or configure if you're running into issues. Uh, so the xorg.com file resides generally in slash Etsy slash X11, and that's with a capital X. And uh, so the, and the xorg.com file is a, is a file that requires root privileges to edit. So if you go in there and you decide you need to start making some edits, I definitely recommend backing up, you know, the, the file that's there uh, first. Uh, so as I said, you know, most distributions will configure this file for you automatically. And what's interesting, actually, is that the X server doesn't really require an Xorg.com file. The X server does have a bunch of sort of built-in defaults uh, that can run on on, on some hardware. I know I've installed distributions, and recently when I've been playing around with some of the BSDs, um, I've installed the uh, the Xorg server and just r- you know ran X without configuring an Xorg. file. Obviously, running um, Xorg without a sort of a customized configuration file may not be may not be optimal. You know, it, it may have some very you know maybe some lower lower level of resolution, and your graphics card may not be accurately configured, but You know, sometimes uh, you you can try running X uh, without an XORG.conf file at all. Now, if you want to, you can also, there are some command line tools that let you configure a file. Uh, One way you can do it is you can run, there's a command line uh, command called XORG configure. I think that's right. And that will walk you through a series of questions intended to create an XORG.conf file. So you just go through that that question, you know, sort of go through the questions and answer them, and then it will save an xorg.conf file, usually I think in the root directory, and then you can copy it over to xorg the, you know, slash etc slash x11 directory and use that. You can also run in the command line the command xorg, that's with the capital X, space, dot config, or sorry, uh, dash configure. That will also, that will try to automatically generate sort of a a sort of a skeleton configuration file again in the root directory and it will be called xorg.conf.new and then of course you copy it over to the slash, slash x 11 directory uh, change the name from xorg.conf.new to just xorg.conf and see if that works when you're testing out configuration files you can also you know run x with a you know on a temporary basis with a with a new file so for example if you run that xorg dash configure command to create this xorg.conf.new file, you can then type in the following xorg space dash config space xorg.conf.new and that will run x with that one file. So it's kind of like a way for you to test a, uh, you know, a a sample xorg uh, file without you know, moving it over to slash Etsy slash X11, you can kind of run it as a one-shot deal in other words. But but anyway, which however you get there, the xorg.com file is ultimately the configuration file that will that will run the X server. So what I thought I'd do is kind of talk about this file and sort of, you know, point out some of the sections here and sort of describe the way this, this, configura- this configuration file works. It's a pretty cool configuration file, actually it's um it makes a lot of sense basically it's broken down into a bunch of sections and these sections each one of these sections deals with you know one or two things and then they're all brought together in one in a main section called server layout and that server layout sort of acts as a as a as you know sort of an umbrella over all the other sections and it's a way to you know, bring everything together and that will be your sort of your overall configuration kind of bringing in all these little bits and pieces. And that's what will, what will um, configure your X session. So if you, if you open up xorg.conf in a text editor and start going through it, you will see these sections. Basically the way it works is there's, like I said, there's a bunch of these sections and these sections can be put in any order. So it doesn't make any difference. And most sections have a particular form, and the form is as follows: it's sort of a block of text, and it will start off by saying "section" and then in quotes the name of the section. So, for example, there's one section called "files," so you'll see a, a block with that will start off "section quote files" and then a close quote, and that's sort of the sort of the first line of the files section, and then you'll have a bunch of lines, and that's sort of yeah, that's sort of the you know the the main uh, text of that particular section and then it will close off with the, with the phrase end section all one word you know e n d s e c t i o n end section will be the end of that particular section and then you'll go on to the next section and it will have sort of a similar layout the section names in the xorg.com file there's you know a dozen or so or, or but most of the ones you see are the following there's there's one that's called files there's one that's called server flags, uh, there's one that's called module, there's one that's called input device, and then there's just a device section, and then monitor, modes, screen, server layout, and DRI. Those are some of the most common sections that you see. Okay, so turning uh, to these uh, sections, you know, one at a time here, uh, the files section uh, it, it's it, what it's done, What it's for? It's to specify some paths uh, to various locations throughout the file system. And normally, it, they are paths to different font directories. That's what you typically see. And you'll see font path, and then a, and then a path, you know, to somewhere in the system. And there there might be you know a half a dozen or so. Uh, I think there's also sometimes module path, I believe, uh, but that's essentially what the file section is for. It's for um, the the configuration file to pass along various path names to the x server. Uh, server flags. Uh, the next section is one that uh, lets you set certain sort of global options or default options, and there's several, you know, in the man page. Actually, if you take a look at the man page for xorg.conf, just type man xorg.conf. It's an excellent man page that kind of explains this whole file and all these different sections, but, and, and there's a lot of options in server flags. But the ones I have had to you know, modify the most or the ones I've seen the most in there are, are the ones that deal with uh, monitors being able to you know, shut down or not shut down but to sort of suspend or to, or to blank, you know, to power off, if you will, after a period of time. And there's some options in there dealing with, uh, with dealing with that and, and how long it takes. You know, you can set the suspend time or the standby time or whatever. There's lots of different things in there dealing with, with sort of the uh, you know the blanking of your monitor. You know, to bl- blank the screen. So that's what Server Flags does. Uh, the next section, not module. That's kind of an important section. What this does is it loads lots of different modules that can be used by the X server. Some of the common ones you see are FreeType. That's uh, dealing with with fonts. Uh, there's GLX that deals with uh, GLX and DRI are two different modules, and those deal with uh, graphics and 3D acceleration and things like that. There's ones dealing with the frame buffer and, and other other graphic settings, and you know there's several different modules in there. I think there's I think if you use the Synaptics touchpad, I believe you can load the Synaptics module as well. So again, there's there's different modules, and most of the time these things will be auto configured, and you usually don't need to tweak them too much. But occasionally, you'll sometimes if you if you have a system that's not going to use 3D, there might be a, there might be a DRI module that's loaded that sometimes you'll want to comment out if you're not going to use it. Or you know, conversely, you could have an Xorg. file that has the DRI commented out and if you want to use 3D you'll need to uncomment that line so that's one of these modules that occasionally you'll you'll need to tweak a little bit now the next section input device this is kind of an important one the the the, the preceding sections i mentioned i believe you only have one of those so there's only one file section one server flags one module but input device is the first of several sections of, of which you can have several and basically the input devices are the configuration blocks for all of your input devices, in other words, your you know mice, keyboards, tablets, what have you, and you'll have a different input device for each one of those devices. So you'll have one for the mouse, one for the keyboard, and one for the tablet, let's say. And uh, you know, and again, if if one of these is missing, or if any of these sections are missing, the xorg.conf. I mean, the X server has some sort of built-in default, so sometimes it will be able to fall back to a sort of a default setting for your keyboard or your mouse, but it may not—you know—it may not be—it may not work exactly right, which is why you want to have these sections in there to begin with. But these sections have their own kind of unique uh, format, if you will, and it will start off, of course, section quote input device uh, to, to you know to identify this section, and then you'll have a line that's called identifier, and you'll see this line in a lot of different sections. These, these identifier lines, and then you'll have something in quotes. What they do is they, they are – it's where you can give this device a unique name. And it's just for the internal purposes of the xorg.conf file. So, for example, let's say you have two mice, and you've got, you know, a wireless mouse, and you've got a regular mouse. So you may have two different input device sections for these two mice. And so for the, for the first one, you might say identifier, quote, my wireless mouse – you know, whatever. And then the other one might be identifier, quote, um, my other mouse. I mean, it can be anything you want. It, it, it And then you'll use that name, that phrase, whatever you give it, later on in the server layout section where you kind of pull all these pieces together. So these identifier lines that you see throughout the XOR.conf file are solely for that purpose. Uh, anyway, so back to the input device section, you'll have identifier and then a name, and then you'll have the next line will be driver, and then you'll have the, the name of the particular driver for that keyboard or that mouse or synaptics touchpad. That's another example. For laptops, you might have a separate input device section for the touchpad. Uh, and so sometimes you'll see driver synaptics or something for the synaptics touchpad. Uh, so those that's the input device section. Now, the device section uh, is the one that deals with your graphics card. Now, this is one that you may need to tweak from time to time. So you'll see section device, and then then again, identifier, and then you can call it whatever you want, you know, uh, video card or whatever. Uh, That would be the identifier, just the name you give that particular graphics card. And then the driver. And this is, of course, where you're going to put your video card driver. So let me pause here and make a a few notes about this, make a few comments here. we all deal, obviously, graphics drivers are kind of a big deal for all of us for, for one reason or another. You don't have to be a big 3D gamer uh, to want to have nice-looking graphics on your, on your computer, of course. So, there, but there's lots of different graphics drivers that come with the X server and some that don't. Uh, one driver that's very common is the VESA driver, V-E-S-A. And that's sort of a default, uh, you know, um, generic Video driver. It's intended to work on just about every video card for every monitor. It's just a plain 2D driver. Nothing fancy about it. It's it's I think it's the way I look at it is the visa driver is sort of your fallback standby driver that should work no matter what. If the visa driver doesn't work, then it almost seems like nothing is going to work. At least that's that's been my experience. Um, so. I mentioned that because if you're having problems with your X server, let's say you're trying to configure the Nvidia card or your ATI card or whatever and you can't get X started, you know, you can always go into your xorg.com file, go down to the device section, maybe comment out the line that says driver with your Nvidia driver. Insert a new line called driver just so you can have you can switch back and forth easily without having to you can just comment one and uncomment the other and then swap them when you're testing and put visa V-E-S-A in quotes, and that that hopefully should solve any particular issues you have getting started. Then once you're logged into X and you're in your graphical environment, then you can get online and research and figure out what you need to do to fix it, you know, to switch it back. So the Visa driver is sort of your standby. Now, there's also some open-source drivers that are included with the X server for both NVIDIA and ATI cards. The NVIDIA open-source driver is called NV. So if you have an NVIDIA card, sometimes in driver you'll see that NV. And that's just the default open source 2D NVIDIA driver. No 3D acceleration, but again, it's just sort of a basic 2D graphics driver for NVIDIA cards, it's open source. Similarly, you've got two different, I think it's, this is right, two different drivers, open source drivers for ATI cards. One's called ATI and one's called Radeon. Now I'm not quite sure of the difference between them. I only have one computer with an ATI card, it's my ThinkPad. And I just use, I think I've used the Radeon driver in that one. And uh, the nice thing about these open-source ATI drivers, both the ATI and the Radeon driver, is for some cards, I do believe they offer 3D acceleration. Um, I remember several years ago having an email discussion with someone I I knew that worked at Red Hat, and uh, we were talking about graphics cards and stuff, and he swore by ATI cards. He said, even though they're a real pain in the neck when it comes to their proprietary drivers... The open source ATI drivers are great for 3D acceleration for older cards. And, you know, that, that's that's a good point, I think. In fact, I think on this ThinkPad, I, got, um, I have 3D acceleration running without using the ATI proprietary drivers. It's using the open source driver. Now, it may not be the fastest 3D acceleration or whatever, but I don't play games on it, so it's fine. Um, but... So, ATI and Radeon are two open source drivers for ATI cards that you could try in your device section, just again to see if they work. Now, there's proprietary drivers also. The NVIDIA proprietary driver is called NVIDIA, and the ATI proprietary driver, I think, is something like um, FRGLX, something like that. Again, I don't really, I haven't done much with the ATI proprietary driver, but. If you go with your distribution and you know go to install the proprietary Nvidia or ATI drivers sometimes this section will be changed automatically for you and sometimes you will need to go in and change this device you know section change the driver line to Nvidia or the FRGLX or whatever it is Uh, for ATI cards just you know depending on what you have so obviously follow any instructions that you may have on installing drivers but I'm just kind of pointing that out here that's often a section that uh, people may need to go in and tweak just to solve you know sort for troubleshooting issues for example um, as I mentioned that post in the Linux reality forums about having problems with the X server uh, you know one solution might be to just go into the xorg.com file and change the driver to Visa just to get things started and then, you know, you can get online uh, using Firefox or whatever and start, you know, troubleshooting. Okay, so that's the device section. The next section is monitor. Now, again, this, your configuration file might have multiple monitor sections because you might have multiple monitors. Sometimes I've seen xorg.com files with one monitor section for an LCD screen, say for a laptop, and one for an external monitor. Or you may have a setup where you've got two different monitors side by side, set up to where you can you know view them both at the same time. Now the monitor section also has a similar kind of a layout. You'll have section monitor, and then again identifier, and then the name of the monitor that you want to give it. And then there's some you know some entries for the for the monitor section itself that are unique to that section that you may need to, to tweak. But I usually haven't had to mess around with the monitor section. Of course I don't. I haven't played around with dual-head video cards and all that kind of stuff, so if you're into that kind of thing, there might be some tweaking there that that you might need to do. Let's see. The next section is called Screen. Now, this is interesting because what the Screen section does is it's it's sort of a middle level. You know, I talked about the server layout being at the very top. The Screen section is kind of in the middle because what it does is it brings together two things. It brings together your device, your graphics card in other words, and your monitor. So in other words, a screen for purposes of the xorg.com file is, is made up of two things. The device, the graphics card that is, and the monitor. So if you have multiple graphics cards or multiple monitors, you can have different screens for different configurations. You can kind of mix and match, if you will, different device driver or different graphics cards with different monitors into different screen sections. So the screen section will usually have the following format it will again section screen and then you'll have an identifier and you'll give this particular screen a name and you'll have device and then that's where you'll put in quotes the name of the graphics device that you want to use so as i mentioned you could give your graphics card an identifier of you know internal graphics card or something and then here in screen under with the device line you'll put that same name and the same thing with monitor you'll put in quotes after monitor you'll put the the identifier that you gave the monitor that you want to use in this screen section then the screen section will have a bunch of subsections called displays and each one of these displays is going to be sort of a a different set of of resolutions and graphics depths you know like 24 bits 16 bits 8 bits whatever i'm not a graphics card expert so i don't you know i know that 24 bits is kind of like the highest Uh, bit rate that you can go to and then you'll and that will be under that will so you'll have a subsection display you'll have a depth say for 24 and then you'll have a line that says modes where you'll list separated by spaces the different resolutions for your monitor so you could have 1280 by 1024 and then 1024 by 768 and then 800 by 600 and on down those will be the different resolutions available to this particular screen using that monitor and that video card so that's sort of the way that that section works. Uh, let's see. The next section, as I said, is the server layout. And this, you know, as I, as I kind of said in the beginning, is, is sort of the, the you know, the, at the top of the list. What the server layout does is it brings together your input devices that you want to use and the screen that you want to use. And that sort of comprises your X session or your X server the next time you run it. And, again, you can, have, you can have multiple server layout sections because you may have, again, more, different combinations of screens and input devices and whatnot depending on, you know, your, that, the, the section you want to use. This seems to be most handy for people for laptops, you know, where you've got a mouse and a touchpad and you've got an LCD screen you have an external monitor or whatever. You can have different server layouts with different combinations of things depending on, you know, uh, what you want to use. So you'll see section server layout. And again, you'll have an identifier with a name for that server layout. Then the next line will be screen, and that's where you're going to put the identifier you gave your screen section that you want to use. Then you'll have input device, and you'll have the name of the input device that you want to use for your mouse, and then you'll have another one for your keyboard and you know stuff like that. And uh, you, know, you can see it's pretty cool. Once you look at it, you can see exactly how sort of the whole thing is put together in this uh, server layout section. You'll see sometimes the, um, I think you'll see something like, you know, core pointer or something. And I think maybe core keyboard. Those are, I, I believe, used to identify your primary mouse and your, your primary keyboard. I believe that's the way that that works. Uh, but anyway, you'll see all of that in your server layout section. And you generally, I think for most folks, you're not, probably not going to need to mess with that too much. The exception being for people who have more than one video card or more than one monitor or dual head, stuff like that going on. And then the last section I'll point out is the section called DRI. And this is a section that's frequently in your xorg.com file, but is often commented out by default. You know, it's got the little hash marks in front. Uh, what you would need to do if you want, that section is for sort of 3D acceleration. And it usually says section DRI mode 0666 and then ends section. So it's a very short little section, really just one line. And if you want to use 3D acceleration, you'll probably need to uncomment those lines and make sure the DRI module is uncommented in the module section. And, of course, make sure you have a 3D video card that's capable of doing the 3D to begin with. And then you should be good to go. Uh, but sometimes, you know, most of my computers, I don't, use, I don't do a lot of 3D gaming or anything like that. So I don't really worry about it. But that section is usually there. And it's usually at the very bottom of your XORG.com file, at least for the ones that are um, auto-configured. Uh, so that, you know, in a nutshell, is sort of the, the, the layout of this xorg.conf file. As I said, it's pretty cool to take a look at. I definitely recommend people checking it out and maybe reading the man page if you want. I, like I said, it's a very helpful man page, and it sort of explains this whole uh, configuration file. M- you know, most, most of the time these days, most distributions are able to configure this automatically. It's pretty cool. Uh, and But occasionally, especially dealing with graphics cards and 3D drivers and things, you'll need to go in there and and modify things and tweak things. So, you know, if, if you ever run into a problem with X not starting, I remember last year at one point, Ubuntu, there was an update to, um, I think, to the X server, and it messed some things up, and, and, it, and I don't remember exactly what the problem was, but people couldn't, couldn't boot into the X server. And I think one temporary fix was to go into your xorg.com file, change your driver to Visa, and then it would load up again, at least again, to get you back to your desktop where you can then start troubleshooting and do whatever you need to do to go back and fix it so you can, you know, get it back to where you had it. So anyway, I think that's going to do it uh, for this main section. And I don't have any listener tips for this week, but I do have uh, several pieces of, of email feedback that I'll read next. Okay, first email here is from Ryan. Ryan says, hi, Chess. I love the show. I've been using Linux uh, for a few years, but recently I've been trying to migrate over to using Linux as my main system. It is very hard for me since 75% of the work I do requires Windows. I work as a network engineer. Anyway, I have a question. Let me preface it a bit. In January, I bought a new laptop from Dell, and he gives me all the cool specs. It sounds really cool, Core 2 Duo and everything, but he says it doesn't recognize... Uh, he, he's using Fedora, and it doesn't recognize his Intel 945 ABG internal wireless card. So he tried his Netgear PCMCIA card, but that didn't work. It was like the you know wrong size card or whatever. But he says, and I'm picking back up again, now for possible solutions and help from you. First, do you know if there is Linux support for the Intel 945 ABG wireless card? Second, if I can't get the Intel card to work, can you give me the exact revision number of the D-Link USB wireless card that you use? and possibly point me in the right direction on how to set it up. Also, I don't want to use NDIS driver because it doesn't allow the card to go into monitor mode. Thanks a ton. Keep up the great work. Well, let's see, Ryan. I think your card um, can be configured to work under Linux. I think it's, it's one of these Intel cards that, that has open source drivers, I believe. If you go to uh, ipw3945.sourceforge.net and check out some of the information there, I think your card... What you put in your email here was Intel 945 ABG. I imagine that's the same as the 3945. I think maybe they just left off the three. I don't know. But I think it's a 945 chipset wireless card. And Intel has open sourced the drivers for the 2100, the 2200, and the 3945 cards. Uh, so you should have the module already loaded in Fedora, I would think. What you can do to test is go open up a terminal. And as your root user, so su to root or whatever, and then type lsmod space and then pipe, which is that vertical line, space, less. And what that does is it pipes the contents of lsmod, which is a command to list modules, into the less viewer, which is a a text viewer that lets you view things one page at a time. So you can just use page up, page down, or spacebar or whatever to go back and forth and queue to quit but look through the list of modules that are loaded and see if you see something about IPW. It might be just IPW, it might be IPW 3945, but if you see that, then you'll see that the module has been loaded. So then you might ask, why is it not working? Well, because Intel requires you to download their binary firmware separately. They will not allow the firmware to be redistributed. So you've got to go to that SourceForge site, that IPW3945.sourceforge.net, download the firmware, which is probably in a tarball, Extract that tarball, just, you know, unpack it somewhere, and then as root, copy the contents of that to, I believe, slash lib slash firmware. That's where that is. That's the correct location in most systems. I don't have much experience with Fedora, so it could be someplace else, but you may want to do some checking in the Fedora forums, whatever, first, but that's probably the right location. And then when you reboot, um, your system will... Uh, find the firmware and it, the card should be recognized. You know, as root, you can type IWconfig. That's the wireless configuration tool. And you'll see. You check to see if your wireless card is there. If that doesn't work, the D-Link card I have is the DWL-G122B1. Now, the B1 is the important part. That's the revision or the firmware. That's the only one that works out of the box in Linux because that's the only version that uses the RayLink chipset. RayLink is a very open-source friendly company. They've open-sourced all their drivers. I I think if you go to raylink.rapla.net, you'll see it's a great site with a a list of actual products that are available with the RayLink drivers. Uh, So uh, that should work as well. But that USB dongle is very hard to find. You can find it, but it's almost always the wrong revision. I just lucked out. I ordered it off of Newegg. I think I think Newegg does sometimes a good job of listing the firmware. So I think I might have seen it there with the firmware with the right number. Uh, but I don't remember for sure. But uh, so that's an option as well. And uh, so anyway, good luck with that. I think, I mean, the Intel cards are pretty good, even though the, the firmware is not, you know, not open source, unfortunately. But the mad Wi-Fi drivers are also good, you know, and the, the RayLink cards are, are good as well. Good luck, Ryan. Let's see. Next email here is from Terry. Uh, Terry says hi Chess. I just wanted to drop a line to you and say thank you. I have listened uh, to all your podcasts and was happy to see the list to many more on your site. I am a new Linux user. I've been dabbling for about a year and a half now and am amazed at the speed of development of all the distros. A letter I wrote you was used way back in podcast 18 or so. I have found almost every issue understandable and helpful. I must admit when I get to the command line command line I still struggle, but I will remain persistent. I'm writing for a couple of reasons. Heard of your desire to see schools exposed to more than just windows. I would love to see Edubuntu or similar distros making its way into the schools. Also, in my last email, I mentioned Puppy Linux. This little distro has been a real blessing to us here where I work. I am employed at the Rescue Mission in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada. We operate a thrift store to help subsidize our efforts in the city. We have used Puppy Linux to resurrect old Pentium 2 and Pentium 3s that are donated. This little OS has worked on every computer we have tried it on. Once up and running, I use uh, Gparted to reformat the drives. Within minutes, we have a great open-source OS running on older equipment. Using Puppy frees us from any licensing issues and saves a ton of time. With Windows, a reload of the OS, drivers, and some software takes hours. These computers are then sold or given away through our thrift shop for a very nominal cost to help folks less fortunate. This is also a great low-cost alternative for the starving student who are learning online or just need a good basic system. To anyone who has an old box in the basement, give Puppy a try. You will be amazed. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thank you for your efforts to get new users like me into the fold and learning the basics. I'm loving Linux. And That's from Terry. Cool email, Terry. Thanks very much. You know, I still haven't tried Puppy. I need to. Everything, I, I keep hearing great things about it. It sounds just like an awesome distribution. But uh, thank you for your email, Terry. That's good stuff. Let's see. Got an email here from James. Uh, James wrote me about the, um, the issue I talked about when I was talking about the firmware, you know, um, Closed firmware and everything. He says, great podcast on the subject. Some of the wireless vendors are like you say, simply not interested in allowing people to research their innards to make drivers for OSs other than windows. Part of that could be pressure from Redmond to keep it that way. That would cover the B cards that don't work under Linux, but a G and N are a little more fuzzy. The old card frequency band and power level were determined by the hardware. Many of the newer cards are software-defined radios, where the coils and capacitors are replaced by emulation in DSP. Since a wireless card is an intentional transmitter being used by an unlicensed operator, the design has to be type approved by the FCC. Since the firmware is an active part of the device, the firmware is under FCC control. The use of the card without the code blob is a violation of FCC rules, since the code is part of the approved device. The reason the BSD guys are getting away with it is that the FCC has bigger fish to fry than the three guys that are using the hacked driver. Uh, that's from James. Well, James, thanks. That's good information. That sounds, yeah, that's interesting. I obviously I didn't know that, but it almost sounds like it's sort of like the wind modems, you know, the soft software modems that that don't work in Linux at all because they require you know some proprietary code that only runs on Windows or whatever, but. Uh, yeah, it's a real hassle with the with the firmware. I really wish that, um, you know, I really wish these manufacturers would open source their firmwares and their drivers. I just, I really don't understand why it's such an important secret. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, they're just wireless cards. It's not like it's, you know, <laughs> I don't know. That's just me, though. What do I know? Uh, let's see. Email here from, from Travis. Uh, Travis says, uh, first off, let me tell you that I love the Linux reality show. I have listened to almost every episode now. The show is a great resource. I have used Linux off and on for about four years now, but I have always gotten discouraged. I have now decided to take the plunge and have one box run Linux exclusively. Good job, Travis. That's a great move. Uh, The rest are all dual boot Linux and Windows machines. My question is in regards to episode 24, Video Applications. You mentioned trying to combine several short children's DVDs into one disc. I have the same desire since my daughter is four years old, and I would like to be able to combine several of her DVDs into one disc. I don't really want to carry around ten to twenty DVDs with me on a car trip. Uh, boy, I hear you, Travis. Um, let's see. Did you find a way to combine multiple DVDs into one disc? And would you mind letting me know what software you used? Thanks, and keep up the good work. I look forward to the next show. Hope to see you at the Ohio Linux Show. From Travis. Let's see, Travis. I did get that to work. It's been quite a while since I've since I've done that, so uh, my memory is a little foggy here. But I think what I did was I used a program called Acid Rip uh, to rip and encode the DVDs into a smaller file format. And I, the thing I can't remember is in what format. I don't remember if it was AVI or MPEG. I just, I can't remember. And I, I remember asking Pat from the Linux Link Tech Show because he knows a lot of stuff about this video, you know, encoding and all this kind of stuff. He's done a lot of work on it and he knows a lot about it. And I think there's only one type that can be, that you can use on a DVD that you want to watch on a consumer DVD player and it may be mpeg mpeg 2 perhaps or mpeg 4 i you know i forget i'm sorry uh but i know i used acid rip uh to rip uh the video from the dvds and then once i had all the the videos ripped and encoded and that takes a long time i mean it really takes hours to transcode and to you know encode these videos down into a smaller file uh so just be prepared for it to take you know if you're going to do a lot it may take several days for you to rip and encode all the files Uh, But anyway, once that's done, then I used, I think I used DVD Styler uh, for the DVD authoring part. Uh, There's QDVD Author and DVD Styler. I tried them both, and I think I liked DVD Styler a little bit more. I'm not really sure why, but uh, I used that to bring in the videos, sort of create the DVD structure, because DVDs have to have their own kind of unique file structure, and create the menu, you know, that you'll see on the TV uh, that lets you select between the different videos on there, and the, it's pretty easy. The, the software is actually pretty easy. You know, it lets you create the menus and create links to the files, and you just kind of you know link link the text to a particular video file, so it knows when you push the remote, and you select a particular option on the menu that it goes to the right movie. You know, uh, but it's pretty straightforward. So I would just explore Acid Rip and uh, QDVD Author and DVD Styler and uh, you know may need to do some research on on the forums or the documentation for your distribution to see about what's the right video file to encode in if you're gonna put it onto a a DVD to watch on a TV see because you can you can encode these DVDs into a a bunch of different formats like DivX and XVID and whatnot and uh, some consumer players will play those formats but some won't they'll play on your computer but most consumer DVD players I don't you know won't necessarily read all those formats so I feel like it was MPEG. I feel like that was the format I had to use to put it into, um, it was like MPEG within an AVI container or something. Um, but anyway, uh, so, you know, good luck. And, and maybe, you know, let's talk about it in the forums as well. And maybe if Pat's listening, he can, <laughs> he can post in the forums for this particular episode. Because like I said, he knows a lot about this stuff. Uh, so anyway, good luck, Travis. And I hope to see you at the Ohio Linux Fest as well. So I think that is going to do it uh, th- for this week everybody and it's about time to wrap it up. Okay everybody well I hope you enjoyed that little discussion on the xorg.conf file I think it's I think it's handy to to know about that file even though Nowadays, with Ubuntu and so many of these other, um, you know, very user-friendly distributions, it's often not as necessary to go in there and edit that file. But I do think that occasionally things break with the X server for some reason, or especially when you're dealing with installing proprietary drivers or whatever, that you may run into a situation where you, you know, you boot your computer and it looks like everything's crashed. You know, it looks like the X server is trying to start and it won't. And sometimes I've seen people say that, you know, when they run into that problem, they don't know what to do, and they end up reinstalling the operating system. And, you know, Linux just, I mean, you don't need to reinstall the operating system 99 times out of 100. I mean, it's very rare that that would ever happen. So more often than not, if you run into a graphical problem with a driver or something, you can fix it by, at least temporarily, editing your xorg.conf file, to maybe fall back to the Visa driver or something and then, you know, just to get you started and get you back into your desktop environment and, you know, go from there. So anyway, um, hope you enjoyed that. And uh, I think uh, for next week we're going to, um, well, I'm going to hold off. I've got a couple of ideas. I've had a lot of requests for different things and I've got a lot of, a lot of, lots of things to talk about still on my list. So uh, we'll see, we'll see what, uh, we'll see what comes up next week. So in the meantime, I hope you all have a good week. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for participating in the forums and for sending me all your emails and your voicemails and your donations and things. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Again, have a great week. Have a great weekend. I'll catch you all next time. This has been episode 54 of Linux Reality. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.